keep going. I've written 38 books. Uh, this book on the Jews of Italy will make 39. And I can't say I've enjoyed them all, but they've worked somehow. They, they, they have made a career. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six- to seven-figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six- to seven-figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou. And boy, do we have an incredible guest lined up for you today. This gentleman is one of my intellectual heroes. He's a man who is a thought leader when it comes to the study and practice of American foreign policy. He's one of the brightest lights in the firmament of foreign policy experts. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legendary Michael Ledeen. Welcome to the show, Michael. Nikki. How are you? I'm, uh, you know, I'm pretty good for an older man. How are you? (laughs) I'm fantastic, my friend. I'm fantastic. So, Michael, the listener to this show listens to this show because they're very interested in learning from our guest experts. They want to know what it is that you've learned that's made you so successful in your field. But before they can do that, before they can truly open their ears and open their hearts to you, they need to know who you are. They need to know your backstory. So tell us your backstory. How would you get to be the great Michael Ledeen? Uh, well, I got a PhD in history and philosophy from the University of Wisconsin. And, uh, and I had some great professors. And then I went off to Italy to write a dissertation on fascism. Wow. And and uh, learned a lot there. So, that, you know, then I came uh, back to the United States and uh, taught for a while at Washington University in St. Louis. And uh, then I shipped off to Italy where I spent about nine or ten years. I met Barbara. Married her, uh, and about 10 years later, we moved back to America. That's my story. Fantastic. And yet, you've been someone who has done a lot of work in the arena of American foreign policy. I've read a lot of articles that you've written about uh, American foreign policy in the Middle East, in particular in Iran. I'm actually originally from Iran. I'm a Christian from Iran. And that's how I got to know you and your work. What is it that got you to be interested in this arena and, and to want to, like, put your stamp on it, put your mark on it? Uh, well, we moved back to the United States because uh, I was offered a job as the, uh, as the editor of a foreign policy uh, magazine. And and it was obvious that we were going to have to do uh, an article on the fall of the Shah and uh, Carter's role in it and all of that. So 
So I hired a guy who had just retired from the State Department to to write this. He, he was partially able to do it, and uh, and then I proposed that we do it together, and and so he and I ended up doing it together, and we did a a, a long article called Carter and the Fall of the Shah. And that was a big hit. And then uh, Knopf made us an offer to turn it into a book, and we accepted that, and that was a big hit. And there you have it. I love that story. You know what? I'm going to have to go back and and read that article and, and read the book because I lived through that. I was in Iran when the Shah fell. And I believe Jimmy Carter had a lot to do with the fall of the Shah. The fact that he was running what I perceive to be an extremely naive foreign policy based on uh, not American interests, but adherence to what he called human rights led directly to America abandoning an an old ally in the Middle East in the form of the Shah. And and as a result of that, Iran fell uh, into the hands of the Khomeiniists. And those folks have inspired jihadists the world over. And I know you believe that to be true as well, don't you? Yes. 100%. So um, tell us what happened after that. Well, then I went back to editing. (laughs) I went back to editing the, the Washington Quarterly, as it was called. And when Reagan won the election, Alexander Haig, uh, offered me a job and I and I took it and I and I went to work as a special advisor to the Secretary of State and uh, and that was Haig and boy I learned a lot from him. Fascinating man, Al Haig. Absolutely fascinating man. Brilliant fellow. Um, a lot of people back in the day thought he was deep throat, but but he he was way too loyal to be deep throat, wasn't he? Yes, uh, it was un- unthinkable for him to be deep throat. Yeah, impossible. Yeah, I, I always felt so myself. So, so how long did you work in the State Department for? Uh, well, you know, Haig lasted about a year and a half, and then left, and I moved over to the National Security Council, where Bud McFarlane had gone. And uh, and I worked there as a consultant uh, for another couple of years. Wow! So you you work with Robert McFarlane? I I met him. Uh, he did a speech at Georgetown University when I was a student there. Very smart guy, brilliant guy. Yeah, good guy, good guy. And uh, you know, funny. I noticed one day when I was working in the White House that I was surrounded by Marines. Everybody there was a Marine, <laughs> you know. And, uh, you know, McFarland was one of them. And then later on in life, after 9-11, uh, our two boys joined the Marine Corps. Wow. And so that, that, that became a pattern of our lives. Wow. That's, that's incredible. So how long were you with the National Security Council? Oh, a couple of years, and then I went. Uh, then I went back to writing. 
Fantastic. I started to come across your work when you worked uh, writing some articles for National Review. How did you end up getting that gig? Uh, you know, I don't remember. I think it was Catherine Lopez who asked me if I'd write for them. She was at the time ed- editing the online uh, service for National Review. So I did. I, I almost always say yes. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I remember reading your articles and you would you would end each article by saying faster, please. And I just thought yeah. that was such a powerful phrase. Faster, please. Did, did you, yes, did, it is. Maybe it'll work now. Yeah. Did you get to um, did you get to do any work with Bill Buckley? Did you get to know him at all? Well, yes, I was on his show a few times. Oh, you were on firing line. I got to go look that yes. up. What was he like? Yeah. Oh, great fun. Really great fun. That's that's amazing. That's amazing. So, so Michael, you've specialized in foreign policy. You've understood the foreign policy insofar as Iran is concerned. You've really been an expert in that area, and you, you've turned it into quite the great career. You've you, you've been someone who's worked at the highest echelons of government back during the Reagan days, during the Reagan Revolution, and you've you've been someone who's been an influential voice on how people should consider what they do in terms of foreign policy with Iran and foreign policy with the Middle East. I'd be curious as to what your thoughts are on the current foreign policy of the United States under President Trump toward Iran in particular, but the Middle East more generally. Well, I thought uh, until very recently that um, that, uh, Trump was just more of the same and that he he was not going to really do anything. He was going to talk like a tough guy. Um, but he would not really move against Iran. But then came the Soleimani thing, and he assassinated uh, Soleimani. And and that could well turn out to be a major turning point in this affair. We're, we're going to have to wait and, and see. So why do you say that? Because uh, Soleimani was the leading killer for the Revolutionary Guards Corps, the, the Quds Voice. And, uh, and whereas up until recently we had threatened them and we had said, you better not do these things, we're going to respond. We, we never did anything. In this case, for the first time, uh, we struck down a major uh, killer from the uh, Revolutionary Guards Corps, and and we eliminated him. And, and that's a real change. And I believe that, that the regime in Tehran now has to contemplate uh, real serious changes in their policy. Yeah. Yeah, he uh, he wasn't easily replaced. No, he's not easily replaced. Not at all. Yeah, there's no question about it. Donald Trump um, appears to have some of the instincts of President Reagan without having his polish necessarily. Uh, It's it's too soon to tell. Let's wait and see how it all works out. So, what are your thoughts on this whole impeachment situation? It's a joke. 
It is, isn't it? It's not really uh, rising to high crimes and misdemeanors. It just appeals these folks lost the election. They're having a temper tantrum about it, and they don't think they can win in 2020, so they want to preemptively remove them from the field. That's what it looks like to me anyways. Well, I, I don't think they think they can win now. I don't think they think they can win, period. So, uh, the, so why the keep Democrat, going? Uh, well, what else have they got? They don't have anything else. I'll tell you, um, Stuart Symington and Scoop Jackson must be rolling over in their graves right now. So, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, they yes. were— Yes, uh, Scoop, Scoop would have been a really good— president, and instead we got Carter, one of us. Yeah, I know. He would have been a great president. Uh, I'll tell you, both of them were, were partisan Democrats, but it would be unthinkable for them to do something like this and put the country through it. be unthinkable. Uh, Chuck Schumer, I, I, I don't even know what to say to that guy. He's so blinded by partisan hatred that he's willing to put the interests of the country last just to win some political points. I never thought I'd see that well, well, in the United States of America. Well, with, who have they got? Uh, name me a really good Democratic candidate for the presidency. I don't know about Who's very good, but there's one person they have who's not too horrible, and that's Tulsi Gabbard. I can't say I agree with her really? policies, but she's not a complete nut bar. All right. There's one. <laughs> the rest of how them are crazy. The rest of them are crazy. They're insane. Uh, how, how, would it, how did she win the polls? Yeah, she's, I think, uh, 5%, 6%. That's about it. Exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, I, I, I think that Bernie Sanders is right now the odds-on favorite to win the nomination. Um, yes. Yes, he is. A communist, an actual, honest-to-goodness communist is going to be the Democratic Party's nominee for president. Wow. Yes, I, I'm afraid you're probably right. And he won't do well in a general election. Oh, no, I, I don't think he's going to do well. I, I know I, I have some friends of mine who are hardcore Democrats who are not going to vote for him. They might not vote for Trump, but they'll stay home. <laughs> They're not going to do it. They're not going to do it. He's uh, he's he's scary. That guy. He's scary. You know. Uh, yeah, he is. The, the kind of things he wants to. I heard Joe Rogan say he was thinking about voting for Bernie Sanders. I'm like thinking, Joe, don't you know that if that guy gets in, he's going to shut you down. He's going to take away everything you've ever worked for. That that that's his that's his policy platform. It's yes. uh, Lenin used to say. The problem with capitalists is that they'll sell you the rope that you're going to hang them with, right? Right. And I think that's uh, anybody, any, any major American business or entertainment figure that supports that guy is basically giving them the rope to hang them with. Yes, we're in a jam. I mean, <laughs> Trump is not a great, great president, although it turns out he, he he governs well, right? His results are are very good. They are, and so let let's hope it continues. Well, I I'm very happy with my stock portfolio. I'll tell you that much. And uh, yes, 
as a um, as a Christian from the Middle East, I'm also very happy that he's taken steps to to uh, to eliminate the threat posed by ISIS. So those are good things. Those are good things. Yes. For those reasons alone, yeah. I think he's been a successful president. But uh, he's also done a good job with unemployment for minorities. I, I mean, everybody uh, on on the left tries to tell us this guy's a bad guy. He's a bigot. I'm saying if he's a bigot, he's a really bad bigot. You know, most bigots I know don't try to make the people that they're bigoted against more financially well off. <laughs> not, okay. that I, not that I know a lot of bigots. I'm being a little facetious here, but... Well, he's not, of course, a, a, a bigot. And, uh, you know, he's got a Jewish uh, son and, and 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 daughter. Yes. And he, right, he moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. He's done a lot. He has done a lot. He has done a lot. No question about it. It's a beautiful time to be alive. And living in a free country, I'm grateful for it every single day. Every single day. So, Wait. you too, eh? So, M- Michael, what are you up to these days? What keeps you busy? I'm writing a book about the Jews of Italy. Oh, that sounds good. Tell me a bit more about that. Well, in most countries in Europe, the Jews are oppressed and uh, and are leaving uh, going to Israel, coming to America, going to Canada, uh, et cetera, getting out of Europe. But in Italy, uh, the Jews have won. The Jews are very popular. Kosher, kosher restaurants are in. The Jews are very popular. And nobody knows that story, so I thought I'd run it. it, it it's a wonderful story. I, I like it. I like it. I like it a I lot. Like- Good. Yeah, good. I'm looking forward to reading it, my friend. Looking forward to reading it. So listen, we like to end off each one of our interviews by asking you as our expert guest, what are your top three pieces of uh, of advice, your top three what we call expert action steps that you recommend our listeners take on to make their lives, their careers, their businesses better? So what do you say? Well, get a good education. Study with the best professors uh, you, you can find. And then uh, pursue something that you find fulfilling, personally fulfilling, and keep at it. And uh, don't get discouraged and don't give it up. Keep going. I've written 38 books. Uh, This book on the Jews of Italy will make 39. And I can't say I've enjoyed them all, but they've worked somehow. They they have made a career. Awesome. I love it. Well, thank you for sharing those with us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. You've been one of the warriors for freedom in the world over the last uh, 30, 40 years. And I thank you for your service to the cause of human liberty. Uh, It is uh, one that has allowed people like myself who've been living in countries that were not fully free to enjoy the fruits of liberty when we came here to North America. God bless you for doing that, my friend. We're happy to have you, Nikki. Thank you. Thank you so much. I look forward to reading your latest book. 
And that wraps up another exciting episode, the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's amazing guest, the one and only Michael Ledeen, go to the show notes at thethoughtleaderrevolution.com. And to find out more about how you can take your expertise, your desire to make a difference, to be not just a thought leader, but a heart leader out in the world, making a difference, leading from the heart, and sharing your caring and your craft, go to our website, ecircleacademy.com, click on the button in the middle of the page that says, watch free masterclass, watch that masterclass, take really good notes, and use that to create a blueprint for yourself so you can get out there and do what you were meant to do here on this earth. Until next time, goodbye.